Well, hello and welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we're seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Nick. I'm Garland. And uh, today we are looking at a question still hanging out in Genesis. Uh, we've done a lot of Genesis this uh, this year. Um, was the flood in the book of Genesis a global flood? This is a question we get a lot. Um, Garland, why is this question even asked? It's asked because uh, I think people are trying to figure out what their creation view is. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are of the young earth persuasion, which there's many of those, uh, then the global flood becomes a really important piece to explain um, why we see a lot of the things we see in our geological record, in our fossil record. Uh, and so the global flood for young earth uh, people becomes really, really important. It's also, I think, important because... Um, Anybody reading the biblical text, anybody jumping in, maybe reading their Bible through in a year, or a skeptical person who's like, I'll check out this, this Bible thing. It's really early in the story. You get this seemingly mad God killing everybody and wiping out the earth. And that just creates a mental picture, I think, that we're going to have to maybe wrestle with. Why? So when I read Genesis, and as I've read it, I, I read the flood account, and it seems to on like a straightforward reading, it seems to obviously be a global flood. Right. What would be the reasons people would second guess that? So uh, this is going to be, it'll be instructive here to go back and listen to the episode uh, that we did earlier talking about, did the, the ancient people believe that the world was flat? Mm -hmm. uh, what we're trying to do in that episode is we want to get our minds in the, into the, the minds of the ancient author. And we want to, we want to see things, how they see things, not how we see them in the 21st century world. And so when we do that, our cosmology, our picture of the universe mm -hmm. is radically different than the cosmology that we know today. And so people that have then applied that cosmology, then look at the text and go, what is it, what is it actually saying? And it may not be saying what we think uh, precisely. Another, another reason scholars uh, bring up the question is lots of other, so many other ancient Near Eastern, I feel like we say that a lot lately, ancient Near ancient Eastern, near Eastern uh, creation stories or myths of how things came to be include a global flood. The most famous right. one will be the Gilgamesh epic from mm -hmm. the Babylonian world. And so uh, scholars then come to the biblical text and go, well, Gilgamesh was written before. Now what do we do? Um, and, and what do we make of what, what the Bible does as it makes some changes to the text, it makes some changes to the story, uh, but, but some of it is similar. And so how do we make sense of this? And that question leads uh, to people like me in college just having tons of doubt about the biblical text. And so, uh, yeah, we want to look at it. And so as, as people who are students of the scriptures, as, um, as people who believe the scriptures are authoritative and inspired, our goal is to ask the question. It's not to, to second guess the Bible. It's to ask the question, what does the Bible mean when we're told that a flood covered all the land? Mm -hmm. What do those words mean? What do they mean to the original author? So take us through it. What are, what are some of our options here? As normal on Out of Curiosity, there's going to be some options. And yep. we may even let the, the, the audience go and investigate it themselves. Uh, we want to, the purpose of this podcast is to, is to help people see the options and help people see uh, what the biblical text might be saying. We want to give people data points and give people a way of thinking and then go do the deep dive yourself. And so uh, that's one of the goals of this podcast. And so we're, gonna, we're not going to deviate from that here. Uh, there seem to be four primary options of how people take it. The first one is this. Uh, what we have here is a global flood covering the whole earth. I think mm -hmm. what most people say seems to be 
the plain sense of the text. And we, especially when we look at it from a modern 21st century lens, we have a, a, a globe that is covered all the way with water. So we got just the entire water covers the entire mm -hmm. sphere. And now we're going to go through these four and then we're going to defend, we're going to kind of present one. And it doesn't mean that we're, uh, we're saying this is the right way. What we're trying to do here is my assumption is people listening to this, a lot of us had came with that particular lens that's what we thought we just we came to the text thinking it's a global flood the whole of the spherical earth is flooded with water and then we can people have all sorts of of ways they describe that one is that there was a canopy of water over the the earth before the flood and that canopy of water is called the canopy theory god let that canopy of water that was protecting the earth come down and bring a flood onto the earth that's some in this persuasion trying to make sense of it and yep. so uh we're not going to spend a lot of time explaining that because it's our assumption that that's the, it's view the traditional that, view the traditional view. Most people come to the table with that one. Second view would be this. It's a flood that was universal according to the ancient Near Eastern understanding of universal. So they they experience a flat earth. And when they look, it would be the area of this dry land was covered up to the mountains. Yep. Okay. So that's a, it's similar, but a little bit different picture. Third would be this. It's a flood affecting a large region of the ancient world. So from their perspective, what they can see around them was flooded, yep. but not affirming uh, anything more than that. The mm -hmm. fourth would be this. It was a local flood described hyperbolically yep. in exaggerated language. And we can probably toss that one out mm -hmm. because of the way the text, the text goes on to, to describe this event. And yes. so uh, what we're going to do is uh, we want to look at how people who would say it was a local flood go about making their case. That's really the goal of this podcast. And we'll let the, the listener sort it out on their end. So um, first, we have to see that uh, there's options. Second, that this is a common story in the ancient or Eastern world. So the third point would be we have to understand their cosmology. And that's it would be helpful to go back and listen to the previous episode about the ancient or Eastern cosmology. But to summarize, Yahweh has brought order to disorder. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, he has given humans everything that they need to worship him and perform their job, which is be his image bearers in this world. And what the flood story is going to be and this is going to be just a, a, a 30,000 foot summary. The flood story is God allowing disorder to, to come where there had been order. He's been bringing order. And so the flood is God allowing disorder uh, to, to come onto what he has bring, been bringing order to. And it's a, it is a sign of judgment. Now, the catalyst, the emotion that we're told that God has is grief, not anger, He's not wrathful. He is grieved by what's going on on the earth. And so he brings disorder as a response to his grief. We're good so far. Good so far. Okay. The, the fourth thing we need to see, and this is the question that we're asked, asking here, is what is the extent of this these waters that are in view here. And uh, let's take a look at what the text says. Let's get into the weeds here. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, read uh, Genesis chapter 7. Uh, and let's do verse 20, just the first half of that verse, 720. Right. We want to get this word covered. Genesis, Genesis 720, I'm reading from the NIV. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Okay, so this is one of the, the passages that we see when we go see. The mountains are covered to, and you want to explain what uh, fifteen cubits? <laughs> yeah, so a cubit it was a, a way of measuring, and we even if you think about it, we have this word foot um, that comes from measuring with 
a body part a human appendage. <laughs> so yeah, so that's where you get the idea of a foot, even though we've made it precise. A cubit was a forearm. It was, I, th- I believe, elbow to yeah, finger. Elbow to finger. Yeah. And so that was a way of measuring something. You'd actually put, and it's obviously not precise because everybody's the di- it has a different length. But that's the idea. Is you know, think about elbow to fingertip. I'm gesturing right now, doing it. You can't yeah, see. Yeah, I doing can see this. you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's the length. That's a forearm. So it's about 23 feet, 25 feet, something like that. Yep. Um, and so it seems like the plain text is saying, see, the the waters are covering all the way above the mountains by, you know, 25 feet or so. Now, the Hebrew word for cover here, it's the word uh, kasa, which kasa. I like to say. Kasa is the Hebrew word. And it can mean uh, to cover or to overshadow something. This this use, this use verb is used a lot in the Hebrew Bible. 13 times it's used with water as the subject of the verb. So we got a pretty good, uh, we got some pretty good parallels with this word. Uh, one example would be when the Egyptian army is chasing the Israelites in the Sea of Re, the water kasad them. It it overshadowed them. It overpowered them. It swept them away. Uh, in Jeremiah forty six verse eight, if you wouldn't mind, read or flipping over here. I know uh, Jeremiah forty six eight. This is another use of this word kasa with water as its subject. Uh, Jeremiah forty six eight. Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters. She says, I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. So if we think about the, the word picture there, what we what we have in mind there is is uh, surging or mm-hmm. drenching. I don't necessarily have in mind as Nile waters rise, I don't have in mind covering everything. I have in mind everything is soaked, we might okay. say. Everything is soaked. In Malachi 2, the tears of the of the people are kasawing the altar of God. So okay. kasaw has some meaning with water. It can mean to to cover completely. It can mean to wash away. It can mean to soak. So the first thing we have to do is work with this word cover. Uh, the second thing we have to do is what about the second part of verse 720 in Genesis? Read it again for us. All right. Genesis 720. I lost my place. Let me find it. There we are. Uh, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits, four, 15 forearm lengths. Okay. So I like how you said that. 15. We should change the translation to 15 forearm 15 lengths. That forearm would help lengths. us. Yeah. <laughs> so much um, clearer. What we have to do here is uh, we have to work with what's being translated here uh, with a depth to. Um, uh, the, the word in Hebrew is, uh, it's the, it's a word that essentially means up to, or to the height of. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we have to get, there's a potential word picture that we might get off when we think covered above it. Yep. That's what I tend to tend to have come with the text with, or let me give you a different picture in, uh, in Egypt, the way that they would measure the river is mm-hmm. they would have rocks that the river would hit up against. And they would write, we see the same thing even in, in, uh, right. in today with like bridges, they would put uh, measuring like lines and that would tell you how high the water is rising. Mm-hmm. It's rising upwards up a, the side of this rock or the side of this uh, crevice in the, in the river. Now notice the word picture. It is rising upwards, but it doesn't mean it's covered it above the right. mountaintop. So one potential understanding of 720 is the water is soaking everything upwards of 15 feet up this we might say up the mountain. Yep. So notice the difference in the word picture. One is the water is above the highest mountains by 25 feet. So the waters are submerged, or I'm sorry, the mountains are submerged, submerged underneath the other feet word. Of water. The, it's, and it's the same Hebrew word. It's just figuring out what is the word picture the author is trying to give us. The second one is the water has risen upwards of, we might say, 25 feet up from where it normally would be. Yep. Way different word picture, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now uh, the next thing we have to do is we, we're going to jump over to seeing the, the, we're told that the ark comes to rest on the mountain, on Mount Ararat. Now, notice it says the mountains 
of error rate. That's one of the reasons why people think it's so difficult to figure out because it doesn't say a mountain. It says the mountains of error. It's a mountain range. Yep. And what we want to do here is we got to understand how prepositions work. And I'm going to rely on you because you're much nerdier than I am. Uh, give us how prepositions you sure about work. that? Yeah. What, what a compliment, by the way. Uh, in this sense, I actually made it as such. And probably not true. But, <laughs> yeah, know. it may not be true. What, what, uh, how do prepositions work uh, and why are they tricky in Hebrew, we might say? Yeah. So prepositions in general, they, they show a relationship between two nouns, sometimes spatial relationship, like I'm standing on the ground or I'm standing next to the wall. Um, but prepositions show relationships between two things. And what's tricky about it is in any time you learn a new language, the prepositions don't translate one-to-one, meaning this preposition in Hebrew does not always mean the same thing as this one in English. If you've ever learned another language, you know prepositions are always tricky. The hardest thing. Uh, yeah. I, I always say when I learned Spanish, I had the hardest time getting poor and para right. Yeah. I never could keep those straight yeah. in my mind. Four or two, or yes. how does that work? Yeah, I never could do that. And similarly in Hebrew, when you learn Hebrew prepositions, you'll learn this one Hebrew tran- uh, preposition could translate to like four or five different English prepositions. Yeah, the problem being in English, we've got lots of prepositions. Yep. In Hebrew, not so many. They've got and a they're handful. They're really flexible. They've got to do a lot of the work that our o- over a dozen prepositions in English mm-hmm. do. And so here's the preposition we have here, and it's in 8.4. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And so this is the Hebrew preposition all. And uh, all can mean to, it can mean on, it can mean against, it can mean opposite. And and this word is used, uh, actually it's a, it's a preposition. So it's used a lot. It's it's used 5,090 times in the Hebrew Bible. And you listed all 5,000 and checked them all, right? I did go and look at them and, uh, and here's how they're, (laughs) here's how they are, how it's translated. Uh, 1,338 of those times. So the most it is used, it is translated as on. Okay. And, uh, we're taking that preposition in the NIV as on here. So the, the word picture seems to be the, the, the ark is above the submerged mountaintops, and then it comes to rest on, and that for us, we tend to think on the top of this mountain, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but 543 times this word is, so that's not nothing. No. It's actually the second most that this word is translated, is translated as against. And notice the, the different word picture you would have. Something that comes to rest on something, we tend to think on the top of for right. some reason. That's at least how my mind has always went. Mm-hmm. If it comes to rest against the mountains of Ararat, that's a, a, a way different word picture. Would you, would you agree? Oh, certainly. Yeah. So what we have to figure out as we, as we work through this, and there's a lot more we could do, but we don't want to get into all the weeds here. As the waters recede, the waters begin to recede. And what, the, what it says is it goes down the hilltops. Mm-hmm. And so when we think mountaintops or hilltops, and that word is hilltops oftentimes translated. And so uh, the word picture there may be not where the tallest peak looking down at all the other peaks, but from where we came to rest against the mountain, we look down and as the waters recede, we can see the low lying hills coming into view. Uh, So what we're trying to do is we want to, we want to maybe simply suggest that the extent of the flood is a little more complicated than we might've previously thought. That's all we're trying to suggest. Uh, and we're going to have to, uh, let the reader or the listener here, <laughs> let do, the reader maybe, understand, let, do a little bit of work here. I, uh, a quote from a commentator, I think is really helpful. He says, it's not our job to interpret. It's not our job as interpreters to reconstruct the event precisely. Our job is to understand the author's interpretation of the event and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, and so, uh, this probably sounds like, uh, like fine slicing mm-hmm. to somebody who's coming to this going, you're, 
you seem like you have to do some gymnastics to uh, kind of make that case. And I recognize that. Yep. And so what we want to do is we want to try to understand what did the ancient author mean when he uh, wrote this text and this story out? What was in his mind? And then yep. we want to put ourselves as best we can back in that place. And, uh, and, and I, I would say, honestly, like I'm still undecided on yeah. how to read this text yeah. um, and what's going on. It's funny. One of the questions that I've gotten a few times, Garland, is do you and I always agree on things that we're talking about in these podcasts? Frequently, no. <laughs> Frequently, we're actually arguing about the Azazel goat right before we, we started recording this episode. So, what a nerd for bringing in the Azazel goat into hey, the out of curiosity. You podcast. brought it up <laughs> in the original discussion. So, um, yeah. So, the point is like, we're discussing these things, we're wrestling with them. We're not necessarily trying to make a case for one of these things. We're surfacing for you um, the issues that are involved in interpretation that you and I are, are wrestling with as we try to study this text. Now, just for just because it's fun, those who would argue against the global flood, mm -hmm. um, they bring some logistical issues up. And I'll just run through these quickly. Uh, number one, the amount of water it would take to cause this much uh, this much uh, flooding is literally seemingly impossible. It does not exist in the atmosphere and the oceans combined to, to the amount of gallons it would take. Number two, if that amount of water did exist in the atmosphere as some sort of canopy, then the atmospheric pressure would be 840 times higher than it is now. Sunlight would not be able to get through. Wow. Number three, freshwater fish would not have survived. How could they? Because the, all the oceans would have, the oceans would have risen and we would have salt. Number four, how does one account for animals that are found on places like Australia? How do the, how do, uh, how do the, uh, uh, animals get across those land masses afterwards. Number five, the currents that this much water would have created to rise a hundred feet per day would have swamped and crushed the ark. Number six, we'll keep, we can keep going. We're going to stop right there. Uh, I think you're making there, a point Garland. There are, there are those that would defend a non-global flood view. Yep. Uh, they, they have a case and uh, sure. those that defend a global flood blue view, I think have a case. The, mm -hmm. t the typical response is this is God and there's a God acts supernaturally. And so we have a category for supernatural things. And uh, that also is explanatory of what's going on here. I think theologically, when we think about this particular event in the Bible, what we have to see is what it's saying theologically is that God is bringing order to the creation. And because of this this infection called sin that is just ruining the human condition. God is handing humans over to what their human condition in, as it, it trapped under sin naturally will get. And so, but God doesn't end the story doesn't end there. God recreates with Noah. And the yep. goal is God wants to use humans to bless the world. And so uh, he's not giving up on that plan. Um, and that's the theological import of the story. Yeah. And even if, um, even if we're not talking about covering the entire spherical globe. Um, the point here is that the flood was big enough to wipe out human life. And at this point, at some point in ancient history, we know that humanity started very local and spread. Right. And so the, a, a less than covering the whole globe flood could have accomplished the judgment that God is putting here mm -hmm. in place in the Genesis account either way. So, hey, this is this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and Garland, has thanks it? for it has. No, I'm I had a blast. Uh, thanks for guiding us through it, and uh, thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity. As we discussed, was there really a global flood? If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.